Hey, folks, welcome to the Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you very much. Welcome to my reading of D.C. versus Heller, the seminal U.S. Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment, one of three I'll be reading in the coming days. This is part two of four of my reading of D.C. versus Heller. Here we go. Hey, folks, if you like this Law of Self-Defense content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider picking up a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles. It's a real physical book. It's not just a PDF download. You can check it out on Amazon, where it's five-star rated, over 1,400 reviews, but don't buy it on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and the shipping and handling. We only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. The book itself is free. You can get this book, learn more about it at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Prefatory Clause. The prefatory clause reads, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, close quote. Well-regulated militia. In United States v. Miller, 1939, we explained that The militia comprised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense. That definition comports with founding-era sources. Petitioners take a seemingly narrower view of the militia, stating that militias are the state and congressionally regulated military forces described in the militia clauses. Although we agree with petitioners' interpretive assumption that militia means the same thing in Article I and the Second Amendment, we believe that petitioners identify the wrong thing, namely, the organized militia. Unlike armies and navies, which Congress is given the power to create, the militia is assumed by Article I already to be in existence. Congress is given the power to provide for calling forth the militia, and the power not to create but to organize it, and not to organize a militia, which is what one would expect if the militia were to be a federal creation, but to organize the militia, connoting a body already in existence. This is fully consistent with the ordinary definition of the militia as all able-bodied men. From that pool, Congress has plenary power to organize the units that will make up an effective fighting force. That is what Congress did in the first Militia Act, which specified that each and every free, able-bodied white male citizen of the respective states resident therein, who is or shall be of the age of 18 years and under the age of 45 years, except as herein after accepted, shall severally and respectively be enrolled in the militia. To be sure, Congress need not constrict every able-bodied man into the militia because nothing in Article 1 suggests that in exercising its power to organize, discipline, and arm the militia, Congress must focus upon the entire body. Although the militia consists of all able-bodied men, the federally organized militia may consist of a subset of them. Finally, the adjective well-regulated implies nothing more than the imposition of proper discipline and training. Security of a free state. The phrase security of a free state means security of a free polity, not security of each of the several states as the dissent below argued. Joseph Story wrote in his treatise on the Constitution that 
The word state is used in various senses, and in its most enlarged sense, it means the people comprising a particular nation or community. It is true that the term state elsewhere in the Constitution refers to individual states, but the phrase security of a free state and close variations seem to have been terms of art in 18th century political discourse, meaning a free country or free polity. Moreover, the other instances of state in the Constitution are typically accompanied by modifiers making clear that the reference is to the several states. Each state, several states, any state, that state, particular states, one state, no state. And the presence of the term foreign state in Article 1 and Article 3 shows that the word state did not have a single meaning in the Constitution. There are many reasons why the militia was thought to be necessary to the security of a free state. First, of course, it is useful in repelling invasions and suppressing insurrections. Second, it renders large standing armies unnecessary, an argument that Alexander Hamilton made in favor of federal control over the militia. Third, when the able-bodied men of a nation are trained in arms and organized, they are better able to resist tyranny. Relationship between prefatory clause and operative clause. We reach the question then, does the preface fit with an operative clause that creates an individual right to keep and bear arms? It fits perfectly once one knows the history that the founding generation knew and that we have described above. That history showed that the way tyrants had eliminated a militia consisting of all the able-bodied men was not by banning the militia, but simply by taking away the people's arms, enabling a select militia or standing army to suppress political opponents. This is what had occurred in England that prompted codification of the right to have arms in the English Bill of Rights. The debate with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, as with other guarantees in the Bill of Rights, was not over whether it was desirable, all agreed that it was, but over whether it needed to be codified in the Constitution. During the 1788 ratification debates, the fear that the federal government would disarm the people in order to impose rule through a standing army or select militia was pervasive in anti-federalist rhetoric. John Smiley, for example, worried not only that Congress's command of the militia could be used to create a select militia or to have no militia at all, but also as a separate concern that when a select militia is formed, the people in general may be disarmed. Federalists responded that because Congress was given no power to abridge the ancient right of individuals to keep and bear arms, such a force could never oppress the people. It was understood across the political spectrum that the right helped to secure the ideal of a citizen militia, which might be necessary to oppose an oppressive military force if the constitutional order broke down. It is therefore entirely sensible that the Second Amendment's prefatory clause announces the purpose for which the right was codified, to prevent elimination of the militia. The prefatory clause does not suggest that preserving the militia was the only reason Americans valued the ancient right. Most undoubtedly thought it even more important for self-defense and hunting. 
But the threat that the new federal government would destroy the citizens' militia by taking away their arms was the reason that right, unlike some other English rights, was codified in a written constitution. Justice Breyer's assertion that individual self-defense is merely a subsidiary interest of the right to keep and bear arms is profoundly mistaken. He bases that assertion solely upon the prologue. But that can only show that self-defense had little to do with the right's codification. It was the central component of the right itself. Besides ignoring the historical reality that the Second Amendment was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors, petitioner's interpretation does not even achieve the narrow purpose that prompted codification of the right. If, as they believe, the Second Amendment right is no more than the right to keep and use weapons as a member of an organized militia, if, that is, the organized militia is the sole institutional beneficiary of the Second Amendment's guarantees, it does not assure the existence of a citizen's militia as a safeguard against tyranny. For Congress retains plenary authority to organize the militia, which must include the authority to say who will belong to the organized force. That is why the first Militia Act's requirement that only whites enroll caused states to amend their militia laws to exclude free blacks. Thus, if petitioners are correct, the Second Amendment protects citizens' right to use a gun in an organization from which Congress has plenary authority to exclude them. It guarantees a select militia of the sort the Steward Kings found useful, but not the people's militia that was the concern of the founding generation. Our interpretation is confirmed by analogous arms-bearing rights in state constitutions that preceded and immediately followed adoption of the Second Amendment. Four states adopted analogs to the Federal Second Amendment in the period between independence and the ratification of the Bill of Rights. Two of them, Pennsylvania and Vermont, clearly adopted individual rights unconnected to militia service. Pennsylvania's Declaration of Rights of 1776 said, quote, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, close quote. In 1777, Vermont adopted the identical provision except for inconsequential differences in punctuation and capitalization. North Carolina also codified a right to bear arms in 1776, quote, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of the state, close quote. This could plausibly be read to support only a right to bear arms in a militia. But that is a peculiar way to make the point in a constitution that elsewhere repeatedly mentions the militia explicitly. Many colonial statutes required individual arms-bearing for public safety reasons, such as the 1770 Georgia Law that, quote, for the security and defense of this province from internal dangers and insurrections, required that those men who qualify for militia duty individually to carry firearms to places of public worship, close quote. That broad public safety understanding was the connotation given to the North Carolina right by that state's Supreme Court in 1843. The 1780 Massachusetts Constitution presented another variation on the theme. Quote, the people have a right to keep and to bear arms for the common defense. Close quote. 
Once again, if one gives narrow meaning to the phrase common defense, this can be thought to limit the right to bearing of arms in a state-organized military force. But once again, the state's highest court thought otherwise. Writing for the court in an 1825 libel case, Chief Justice Parker wrote, quote, The liberty of the press was to be unrestrained, but he who used it was to be responsible in cases of its abuse. Like the right to keep firearms, which does not protect him who uses them for annoyance or destruction. Close quote. The analogy makes no sense if firearms could not be used for any individual purpose at all. We therefore believe that the most likely reading of all four of these pre-Second Amendment state constitutional provisions is that they secured an individual right to bear arms for defensive purposes. Other states did not include rights to bear arms in their pre-1789 constitutions, although in Virginia a Second Amendment analog was proposed unsuccessfully by Thomas Jefferson. Between 1789 and 1820, nine states adopted Second Amendment analogs. Four of them, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, and Missouri, refer to the right of the people to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state. Another three states, Mississippi, Connecticut, and Alabama, use the even more individualistic phrasing that each citizen has the right to bear arms in defense of himself and the state. Finally, two states, Tennessee and Maine, use the common defense language of Massachusetts. That of the nine states' constitutional protections for the right to bear arms enacted immediately after 1789, at least seven unequivocally protected an individual citizen's right to self-defense, is strong evidence that that is how the founding generation conceived of the right. And with one possible exception, that we discuss below in Part 2, D2, 19th century courts and commentators interpreted these state constitutional provisions to protect an individual right to use arms for self-defense. The historical narrative that petitioners must endorse would thus treat the Federal Second Amendment as an odd outlier, protecting a right unknown in state constitutions or at English common law based on little more than an over-reading of the prefatory clause. Justice Stevens relies on the drafting history of the Second Amendment, the various proposals in the state conventions, and the debates in Congress. It is dubious to rely on such history to interpret a text that was widely understood to codify a pre-existing right, rather than to fashion a new one. But even assuming that this legislative history is relevant, Justice Stevens flatly misreads the historical record. It is true, as Justice Stevens says, that there was concern that the federal government would abolish the institution of the state militia. That concern found expression, however, not in the various Second Amendment precursors proposed in the state conventions, but in separate structural provisions that would have given the states concurrent and seemingly non-preemptible authority to organize discipline and arm the militia when the federal government failed to do so. The Second Amendment precursors, by contrast, refer to the individual English right already codified in two, and probably four, state constitutions. 
the Federalist-dominated First Congress chose to reject virtually all major structural revisions favored by the Anti-Federalists, including the proposed militia amendments. Rather, it adopted primarily the popular and uncontroversial, though in the Federalist view unnecessary, individual rights amendments. The Second Amendment right, protecting only individuals' liberty to keep and bear arms, did nothing to assuage anti-Federalist concerns about federal control of the militia. Justice Stevens thinks it is significant that Virginia, New York, and North Carolina's Second Amendment proposals were embedded within a group of principles that are distinctly military in meaning, such as statements about the danger of standing armies. But so was the highly influential minority proposal in Pennsylvania. Yet that proposal, with its reference to hunting, plainly referred to an individual right. Other than that erroneous point, Justice Stevens has brought forward absolutely no evidence that those proposals conferred only a right to carry arms in a militia. By contrast, New Hampshire's proposal, the Pennsylvania's minorities' proposal, and Samuel Adams' proposal in Massachusetts unequivocally referred to individual rights, as did two constitutional provisions at the time. Justice Stevens' view thus relies on the proposition, unsupported by any evidence, that different people of the founding period had vastly different conceptions of the right to keep and bear arms. That simply does not comport with our long-standing view that the Bill of Rights codified venerable, widely understood liberties. We now address how the Second Amendment was interpreted from immediately after its ratification through the end of the 19th century. Before proceeding, however, we take issue with Justice Stevens' equating of these sources with post-enactment legislative history— a comparison that betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of a court's interpretive task. Legislative history, of course, refers to the pre-enactment statements of those who drafted or voted for a law. It is considered persuasive by some, not because they reflect a general understanding of the disputed terms, but because the legislators who heard or read those statements presumably voted with that understanding. Post-enactment legislative history, a deprecatory contradiction in terms, refers to statements of those who drafted or voted for the law that are made after its enactment, and hence could have had no effect on the congressional vote. It most certainly does not refer to the examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification. That sort of inquiry is a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. As we will show, virtually all interpreters of the Second Amendment in the century after its enactment interpreted the amendment as we do. Post-Ratification Commentary Three important founding-era legal scholars interpreted the Second Amendment in published writings. All three understood it to protect an individual right, unconnected with militia service. St. George Tucker's version of Blackstone's commentaries, as we explained above, conceived of the Blackstonian arms right as necessary for self-defense. He equated that right, absent the religious and class-based restrictions, with the Second Amendment. Tucker elaborated on the Second Amendment, quote, This may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The right to self-defense is the first law of nature. 
In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine the right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever standing armies are kept up, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, under any color or pretext whatsoever, prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. Close quote. He believed that the English game laws had abridged the right by prohibiting keeping a gun or other engine for the destruction of game. He later grouped the right with some of the individual rights included in the First Amendment and said, if a law be passed by Congress prohibiting any of those rights, it would be the province of the judiciary to pronounce whether any such act were constitutional or not, and if not, to acquit the accused. It is unlikely that Tucker was referring to a person's being accused of violating a law making it a crime to bear arms in a state militia. In 1825, William Rawl, a prominent lawyer who had been a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly that ratified the Bill of Rights, published an influential treatise which analyzed the Second Amendment as follows. Quote, The first principle is a declaration that a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, a proposition from which few will dissent. The corollary from the first position is that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The prohibition is general. No clause in the Constitution could by any rule of construction be conceived to give to Congress a power to disarm the people. Such a vladshidious attempt could only be made under some general pretense by a state legislature. But if in any blind pursuit of inordinate power either should attempt it, this amendment may be appealed to as restraint on both. Close quote. Like Tucker, Raoul regarded the English game laws as violating the right codified in the Second Amendment. Raoul clearly differentiated between the people's right to bear arms and their service in a militia. Quote, in a people permitted and accustomed to bear arms, we have the rudiments of a militia, which properly consists of armed citizens divided into military bands and instructed, at least in part, in the use of arms for the purposes of war. Close quote. Rawl further said that the Second Amendment right ought not, quote, be abused to the disturbance of the public peace, close quote, such as by assembling with other armed individuals, quote, for an unlawful purpose, close quote. Statements that make no sense if the right does not extend to an individual purpose. Joseph Story published his famous Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States in 1833, Justice Stevens suggests that there is not so much as a whisper in Story's explanation of the Second Amendment that favors the individual rights view. That is wrong. Story explained that the English Bill of Rights had also included a right to bear arms, a right that, as we have discussed, had nothing to do with militia service. He then equated the English right with the Second Amendment. Quote, Section 1891. A similar provision to the Second Amendment in favor of Protestants, for to them it is confined, is to be found in the Bill of Rights of 1688, it being declared that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their condition, and as allowed by law. But under various pretenses, the effect of this provision has been greatly narrowed, and it is at present in England more nominal than real as a defensive privilege. Close quote. This comparison to the Declaration of Right would not make sense if the Second Amendment right was the right to use a gun in a militia, 
which was plainly not what the English right protected. As the Tennessee Supreme Court recognized 38 years after Story wrote his commentaries, quote, The passage from Story shows clearly that this right was intended and was guaranteed to and to be exercised and enjoyed by the citizen as such, and not by him as a soldier or in defense solely of his political rights. Close quote. Story's commentaries also cite as support Tucker and Rawl, both of whom clearly viewed the right as unconnected to militia service. In addition, in a shorter 1840 work, Story wrote, quote, One of the ordinary modes by which tyrants accomplish their purposes without resistance is by disarming the people and making it an offense to keep arms and by substituting a regular army in the stead of a resort to the militia. Close quote. Anti-slavery advocates routinely invoked the right to bear arms for self-defense. Joel Tiffany, for example, citing Blackstone's description of the right, wrote that, quote, The right to keep and bear arms also implies the right to use them if necessary in self-defense. Without this right to use, the guarantee would have hardly been worth the paper it consumed. Close quote. In his famous Senate speech about the 1856 Bleeding Kansas conflict, Charles Sumner proclaimed, quote, The rifle has ever been the companion of the pioneer and under God his tutelage protector against the red man and the beast of the forest. Never was this efficient weapon more needed in just self-defense than now in Kansas, and at least one article in our national constitution must be blotted out before the complete right to it can in any way be impeached. And yet such is the madness of the hour that in defiance of the solemn guarantee embodied in the amendments to the Constitution that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, the people of Kansas have been arraigned for keeping and bearing them, and the senator from South Carolina has had to face to say openly on this floor that they should be disarmed. Of course, that the fanatics of slavery, his allies and constituents, may meet no impediments. Close quote. We have found only one early 19th century commentator who clearly conditioned the right to keep and bear arms upon service in the militia, and he recognized that the prevailing view was to the contrary. Quote, the provision of the Constitution declaring the right of the people to keep and bear arms was probably intended to apply to the right of the people to bear arms for such militia-related purposes only, and not to prevent Congress or the legislatures of the different states from enacting laws to prevent the citizens from always going armed. A different construction, however, has been given to it. Quote. And that's it for part two of four of my reading of DC verse Heller. Next time we meet, I'll be reading part three of four. If you like this kind of content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider becoming a Law of Self-Defense member. It's dirt cheap to at least try it out. You can get a two-week trial membership for only 99 cents. Just go to lawofselfdefense.com slash trial to sign up for that. In the unlikely event you don't like it and you'd like your money back, we'll give you a 200% refund. Most people, almost everyone, stays a member. And just being a standard member of Law of Self-Defense is dirt cheap. It's only about 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month to be a member of Law of Self-Defense. Get unlimited access to all our members-only content. It's the only way to have your comments and questions on live streams be addressed by me. Uh, you get a members-only podcast. Much of our content is limited, so only members can access it. Get all that and much more at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. 
Just try it out for two weeks, 99 cents, 200% money back guarantee. It's a negative risk opportunity. I hope you see you as a member real soon.